This is a Bible. It's one book, so to speak. But in it are 66 books. All, there, all forms of literature are in here. We've looked at a letter to the Philippians. We've seen a journal. Nehemiah is keeping a journal of what happened when he went back at God's commission to rebuild the wall. Just, just a few weeks ago, we finished the book of Mark. It's a biography on the life of Jesus. And here we get a prophecy. And not only a prophecy, but it's set in a story. It immediately captivates you. It immediately draws you in. It's four chapters, 48 verses. And its main point, besides God's compassion for the nation, is how not to be a missionary. And by the way, every single person in this room who has the Holy Spirit within them is a missionary. Every single person. And so let's read together. Jonah 1, 1 through 16. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid, so he paid the fare and went on board to go, from the, to go with them from Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come on upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? Where, what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done as it's pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. People read this and they think, this can't be the case, especially when we get into chapter 2 and he prays a prayer from the belly of a fish. They say, this is children's fiction. This is veggie tales. A man swallowed by a fish? That can't happen. In essence, this is what they're saying. I don't believe in miracles. Ergo, therefore, this story cannot be true. Which is just 
a logical fallacy. Because, because what you believe is, if you, what you believe isn't true, therefore what follows is off. And so they say, I don't believe miracles have happened, therefore this story isn't true. But that kind of reasoning assumes that their beliefs, their beliefs are without error. People have always asked, are there real Jonas in the world? There was a Star of the East ship from Britain in the 1800s. There's a story of a man in the whale, but it's debated, so I don't need to go there. Again, I told you about a gentleman who was locked in a cargo hold that actually survived being almost frozen to death. But the Scripture stands alone and does not need an illustration to justify it. Period. Even if there were no man in a whale, no man in the cargo ship of the whole, it's in the Scripture. It is therefore true. And when it's referenced by our Lord and Savior, I would go with that. I don't need an illustration. I just need Jesus. Jesus said it was true. I'm going with Him. And this is how this story begins. It begins with one verse of 14 words. It says now and then it ends with saved. Twelve words in between. We immediately move into the story. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, This is not People magazine. This is not just some fictitious story thought up. This is the word of the Lord. And not much is known about Jonah. His name means dove. His father's name means loyal. And we move very quickly from now to saying right into the story. There's an urgency with which this story is told. Arise. If you don't have a translation that has arise there, you might put get up. That's what it literally means. Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In verse 1, we get God's revelation. In verse 2, we get God's commission. Arise. You want to put that there. It's there. It's very important. What God is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, reorient your life. And go, go to Nineveh. And he calls Nineveh something. He doesn't just say go to Nineveh. He says go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh, if you're in the Sunday school class, you know that it was founded by Nimrod, whose wife was Samarius. And it's not a very uh, God-loving city. Let's just say that. It was a part of the land of the seven cities. Some think it is the biggest city in the ancient world. It served as the capital of Assyria. It was so fearsome, they had walls around it 20 feet high. And its wickedness is great. Just listen to Nahum chapter 3, another text written to this great city. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing swords with glittering spear, a host of slain, heaps of corpses. They didn't do anything. They just Whoever they slain, they just stack them up. Dead bodies without end. It's like you look and you just see it's looking out. If we were to walk out right here and you just look and you just see the mountains go on forever. Just look and see the dead bodies. And they stumble over the bodies. And all for countless whorings and prostitution, graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with their whorings, people with their charms. They're into idolatry 
and prostitution, this is a perverted city. And we should step back and we should go, whoa. God loves Nineveh. He would have His man go and proclaim the good news that you need to repent and give them chance to repent or they'll be judged. God would do that? Yes. In its size, in its power, and in its wickedness, Nineveh was a great city. And I don't think I misspeak when I say outside the size but its power and its wickedness, this is a great valley. Or if you go to anywhere in the United States, geographically, spiritually, and definitely sinfully, you could say there are a lot of great cities in America. And God wants His man to go. Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Say something to it. The Bible says... It is a strange thing for God to be a God of judgment. But He says, cry out against it, for their evil literally has come up before my nose. The stench of that city has risen up before me. Not that God, God is a spirit, not that He has a nose, but it's it's come up and I just, I I smell it and it's gross, but guess what? I want to save them. I want to save them. So God wanted... Summarize the first two verses. God wanted a person, Jonah, to go to a place, Nineveh, to proclaim the good news. You are sinning against the holy God. He wants you to repent with a purpose. Preach the gospel, Jonah. Take the good news to them. Take it that I, want, I don't want them to die in their wickedness. You could say if John 3 were written at this time, for God so loved the world that He sent His prophet to preach the Word that a wicked people might be spared. The God of the Old Testament is a God of grace. He didn't have to do that. Nineveh was, in fact, Israel was nothing special. It says in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't choose you because you were bigger and better than the other nations. I chose you because I loved you. Nineveh was nothing special. In fact, they were exceedingly wicked, but God goes to them. And he wants his men. And how does God do it? He calls upon his prophets to go. And so if you're reading through your Bible, you're thinking, no problem. This is Jonah, right? This is a prophet. Jonah was a prophet. And then you could throw in your ooh, ooh. He was. And you're thinking, Isaiah, he said, here I am, send me. Jeremiah, he, he said, I'm but a youth. But the Lord touched his lips and, and he understood. Ezekiel, he, he had to eat a, a bitter word. Daniel, we see nothing but character from this young man. Hosea, he actually went and, he, he actually went and took a, a prostitute because God told him because he wanted that to be a picture. He married her because he wanted it to be a picture of God's love for his nation. Amos, he was just a sheep herder. When God called him and told him what to do, he just immediately went and did it. Same for Obadiah. So Jonah, Jonah, you, you would think it says, and Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh and he cried out against it. But, it's your first contrast of the book, but, but, Jonah rose, same word used in verse 1, God, or verse 2, God said, arise, 
Jonah arose. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah arises to flee to Tarshish. I have a map up here somewhere. Here we go. This right here is Israel. Go to Nineveh that way. What does he do? He goes down to Joppa and he wants to go all the way over here to España, to Spain. That's where Tarshish was. Arise, you go up that way to Nineveh and Jonah says, no, no, not going to happen. But Jonah arose. I still laugh at our friend at the atheist perspective. It sums up how writers cared about the accuracy of the book they were piecing together. Obviously, you've never read Jonah accurately. Arise, go to Nineveh. No, no, Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare. He went down to Joppa, 35 miles south and west of Jerusalem, and then he paid the fare. He got on board a ship, and he went to Tarshish. And watch this. Away from the presence of the Lord, or away from before the Lord. It's, it's capturing exactly what God said in, chapter, in verse 2. Their evil has come up before me. What does Jonah do? I'm going to run away from you. It's quite comical, actually. Jonah wanted none of Project Nineveh, so he said, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction that God told me. In fact, if you look at verses 3, and you'll see again in verse 5, Jonah went down to Joppa, and so he paid the fare, and my version says went on board. Literally, he went down into it, and we will pick up in two more verses that he goes down two more times. Go up, down, down. Jonah, who had gotten the world that, that God said, their evil has come up before me. Nothing is out of my sight. He says, I'm going to run. I'm going to run from God. Not the smartest thing he could have done. So we have Jonah. <laughs> You've seen the video, maybe, some of you, with younger children. He's at the Marina del Joppa, right? He shows up. <sighs> Where do you want to go today? West. Well, all we got is ship going to Tarshish. That'll do. And he gets on the ship. See the sailors packing their cargo packing up the boxes, stacking them nicely. Jonah goes and he... We don't, eventually he'll get down in the hole of the ship, but he, he gets on and they take off. So what does God do? Verse 4. But the Lord... There's your second contrast. Verse 1, God gives him the revelation. Verse 2, He gives him a commission. Verse 3 is Jonah's rebellion... Verse 4 in this whole paragraph is God's determination. He has dominion over the entire world. And so what does He do? The God who sits in the heavens takes some wind. The picture here, if it, you've got to see it in the Scripture, He takes wind in His hand and he, he hurls it. Hurls it upon the sea. Not just any old wind. Not just a, just a, a little wind. Let's just throw some wind on. It's a great wind. And he hurls it upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest, a great tempest, a great storm on the sea. 
So far, I've seen a rise, I've seen down, I've seen hurl, I've seen great, used over and over by this author. Pretty accurate. Pretty much knows where he's going with this story. And this is God's dominion. And this is huge. Let us not overlook this. God in His grace will not let Jonah go in his disobedience. God in His grace will not let Jonah go in his disobedience. God in His grace will not allow His man, this person of God, to run from God. In fact, He will turn the world upside down to get Him back. And so the Creator of the world literally throws a great wind upon the sea and this great storm, I love this, was coming up and the storm is waves are hitting the ship that the ship threatened. I'm going to break up! And the ship threatens to break up. And this is all a part of God's determination. And then the mariners were afraid. And each one cried out to his God. Literally, it says in another translation, they were all afraid. Now, if you and I have ever been on a ship, or if we've ever been, you've been on a ship, I know that, or an airplane, and you're hitting some turbulence or some rocky waves, who are you looking to? You're looking to anybody that's a part of that has the badge, the ship, or the plane, right? And if their eyes, if they're just walking around, would you like some coffee? You're not worried. Yeah, I'll take it black. You just sit there, right? But if the attendants, white-knuckling the cart, getting it back, going to strap in, you're a little worried. It says every single one of these sailors was scared. They had set off a normal day at the office, packed the cargo, ready to go on to Tarshish, And right now, you see them respond to this great storm. They don't know where it's coming from. We do. That's our privilege. And they give us an emotional response. They were afraid. And then they give us a spiritual response. They cried out, each to his own God. Probably what has happened is much like you see in this valley. You have people coming from all over the world to work in this valley, and you've got some folks from... Europe, some folks from South America, and they're all working together to make pull off what happens at the valley. And I think what's happening in Joppa is you've got men from different parts of the world, maybe some from Tarshish, maybe some from Joppa, all coming on, and they all believe in different gods. And so they get on a ship, and it goes, and so they're crying out. One's crying out to his God. Another one's crying out to his God. Poseidon, please. Right? That's the newest, latest craze in movies, Clash of the Titans. Poseidon, don't. And then they're practical. They're emotional, they're fearful, they're spiritual, and they're practical. They're taking the cargo, and they think, maybe if we lighten a ship, it won't turn over. And look what it says on how they're doing this. God hurls a great wind, and the men try to hurl over the cargo. God throws a great wind upon the sea, and the men start throwing off all their cargo. Our attempts to change the situation we're in on our own efforts are fruitless. When God hurls a great wind upon the sea, you may throw all you want, but that's not what God... He doesn't want to see how strong you are. Man, did you see? I got two boxes off on that throw. Mm -mm. Surely, Jonah, 
He's seeing this. He's aware. He's, maybe he's even helping. No, at the end of verse 5, look what it says. But Jonah, there's another contrast. God gives Jonah a commission, but Jonah runs away. So God throws, throws a storm upon the sea. But Jonah, but Jonah, he'd gone down into the inner part of the ship and laying down and was fast asleep. The NIV says it was a deep sleep. The New American Standard says it was a sound sleep. Go up to Nineveh. No, I'm going to go down to Joppa. I'm going to go down into a boat. I'm going to go down underneath the boat and I'm going to lay down to sleep. If you don't catch, if we don't catch those together, all of us, if we don't catch the progression there and showing that Jonah's doing the exact opposite of what God calls him to do, we've missed this text. That's why it's there. That, to me, is very accurate in the writing of this book. And we've all known people who can sleep through anything, right? One of my kids, you could bang a drum. I think it's because we vacuumed when she used to be asleep, just just right there next to the door. You see her now, just sound asleep, shaking them. And it's a picture. There's pandemonium above. And Jonah's not even wondering what's going on. He's absolutely unaware of what's going on. And so, verse 6, the captain of the ship came and said to him, literally, what do you mean, you sleeper? Great translation. How can you sleep? Here he is, sound asleep. Finally, the guy's probably shoving him. Jonah, how can you sleep? And the very first words he hears is, Arise. Or get up. I've heard those words before. Maybe not in the same tone, but I've heard arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Arise, get up. A a rebuking reminder from a sailor to God's prophet. Jonah's sitting there, "Don't, don't use that language. I'm running from God, and you're telling me to get up and call upon my God? Ever had that in your life? Days when we're running from God in whatever situation it is, and an unbeliever gives us an unexpected reminder of God's grace? Hey man, would you pray for me? Here comes our first comparison. The captain, the man who's responsible for his crew, was concerned for his mission. I need your help. We're perishing. Might you call upon your God so we can be saved? And Jonah, the man responsible to God, was unconcerned with his mission. And if you've been in the military, he was literally AWOL, absent, without leave. He had a mission. And he had gone AWOL. And so God gives his commission. God shows us his determination. He will use storms. He will use sailors to try to shake into his man since. And in 7-10, through 10, we see God's revelation. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on what account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Lots were away. It's literally, they were black and white. You roll them, throw it out, and if they landed too black, negative, too white, positive, mixture, they had to discern further. But it's like dice, and so they throw lots. 
to see, give us direction in the future or give us the cause of what's going on in the present. So they cast lots. And the lot falls on Jonah. We see lots in the Old Testament, Joshua 18, Leviticus 16, even in Acts 1, but as soon as the Holy Spirit comes to live within the hearts of believers from Pentecost to the rest of the New Testament, no more lots. I think it's because God wants us to be guided through the Spirit and the Scriptures. But here, and let me just read you a proverb that even when these men roll the dice, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Yeah, you may cast your lot, sailors, but God's the one turning those things. God is sovereign over Las Vegas. He's sovereign over Las Vegas. And they said to him, Tell us on, on account of this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? What's your job? Where do you come from? Where's your hometown? What is your country? What's your nation? And of what people are you? I think at this time the sailors are just trying to figure this out because maybe this is the God they should call upon. Who are you and and that you should come to us? And he says to them in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Christian. I fear the Lord, the One who made the sea and the dry land, i.e., all this turmoil is going on. My God is the Creator of this. I'm a Hebrew. I come from the proper nation. This is convicting. Jonah, what does he have? He has an orthodox theology. His belief is right. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. See that quoted in Proverbs 1. Verse 7, I fear the Lord. And He's not just the Lord, He's the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. He's orthodox in His belief, but He's atheistic in His behavior. So when the next time somebody, we're talking about the book of Jonas, and people say, are there any real life Jonas? Oh yeah, turn to verse 9. There's a lot of believers out there who are right and straight in their orthodox, but they live like God doesn't even exist. Don't overlook that. Do we do this? Do I do this? Who are you? I'm a believer. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe He was God's Son. He was a God-man. And I can give you all the apologetics you ever want to know. How you live it. Will you pray for me? See a little bit of Jonah in all of us. And then the men, once they hear this news, were not just afraid, they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I sense he boards the ship. He tells them the situation. I got a commission to go do something. not really fond of it, so I'm going to go as far away as I can. The storm comes. They cast lots, and the sailors are starting to put this together, and they say, What have you done? Rebuked by a pagan. And this is nothing new. This is exactly what God said to Adam. What have you done? This is exactly what Pharaoh said to Abraham. What have you done? This is exactly what Abimelech said to Isaac. What have you done? And I could just see Jonah. I'm a Hebrew. What have you done? 
What are you doing that would cause your God to do this? And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? They're desperate. What do we need to do? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And then he said to them, Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now we think, oh, Jonah, didn't he? Isn't that just wonderful? Just throw me in. No. There's, no, there's nothing, if you were to go back in, in Genesis through Deuteronomy or pick it up in Joshua all the way through Esther, even in Isaiah, Job through Song of Solomon or Isaiah right up to Obadiah. There's nothing in there that says when a sea comes upon the land caused by the prophet, throw the prophet in, ergo, and this is the Lord's way that salvation should come. Jonah is putting himself in the place of God, deciding on who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. I won't go to Nineveh and cry out against the wicked city, but it is because of me. So, so throw me in. Right now he's playing games. There's, there's nothing in there that says God has to respond to Jonah's suggestion. Nothing. Now watch this in verse 13. Throw me into the water and the sea will quiet. Did he really, did he really believe that? And the sailors, nevertheless, the men literally dug in their oars. But they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They dug in their oars. They're saying, no, we're not going to do that to you. It's amazing how unbelievers can be so kind and considerate, isn't it? It brings us to our second comparison. The sailors were unwilling for Jonah to die initially. Jonah is willing for Nineveh to perish. So what do the sailors do? They call out in verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, using the covenant name, let us not perish for this man's life. They're going with all they know. They don't know better. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it's pleased you. There's a recognition of God's sovereignty. There's a recognition of This man is running from him. And so they pick up Jonah. And look what they do. They hurl him. God hurls a storm. They hurl over the cargo. Now they hurl over Jonah. And you can imagine. He didn't walk a plank, right? That's what we think. I mean, when I'm on a ship and you're going overboard, all I know is you walk the plank. They got Jonah here. I don't know how they did it. I'm just a little divine speculation. What do you think Jonah's thinking? Perhaps what's going through his mind is, Lord, save me. Lord, I'm so sorry. I think that's what he said. It's chapter 2. tells me that. Oh, save me. I'm wrong. And they threw him in, and God played his game. The sea ceased from its raging. God will use weak efforts of believers to show His glory to unbelievers. 
And look what he does in 16. The men fear, look what they do. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. Literally, they feared to fear. They go from being afraid of the storm to exceedingly afraid of this God whom Jonah had revealed to them. And then when this ceases, they feared to fear. And not only did they fear to fear in their attitude, but they offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows. Both in their attitude and in their action, they lift up the name of Yahweh. And thus, we are at the end of Act 1 of this four-act drama. If you notice, in some of your Bibles, there's a margin note by verse 17 that says this is actually 2-1 in the Hebrew, and that's where we'll pick up next week. But what can we learn from 1-1-16? I want to look at it from the advantage point or the disadvantage point of the main actors. We'll begin with the sailors. Did they really believe Did they really trust in the Lord or did they just add Him to their list of polytheism? If you really want to study this and have trouble sleeping at night, I can give you some commentaries where people just spill ink over, did these men believe? Well, they sought the Lord in prayer. They acknowledged His sovereignty over the universe. They trembled before Him. And they offered worship not only in their actions, but in their attitudes and words. They seemed to be fearful, faithful, and fervent in their worship of God. But we don't know. So I don't want to come right down. But we will know if there's the perseverance of the sailors. That's good. Like that. We go to heaven and there are sailors there. Obviously then that was a true belief in Yahweh. If they're not, then maybe they added them to their polytheism. But here's one thing we can know for certain in the third comparison. It seems to me they feared more God more than Jonah did. And what about Jonah? VeggieTales did get this right. Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. Never really got it. Sad but true. He was rebellious against God and unconcerned with the loss. And there was this peace, this sleepy peace in his rebellion. You ever known people like that? People who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are literally walking against God and they're having some of the greatest quiet times of their life. I have a friend back in Texas has done some atrocious things and I've talked to him on the phone and I hear no sense of remorse and it scares me to death. Yeah, my quiet times are great. Memorizing Ezekiel. How are you doing in this? Oh, that's gracious. When we run or run away from God, I assure you Satan is waiting there with a ship. He will make it easy. And we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be the Eagle Bible Marina that allows people to come in and just grab on the ship there wherever they want to go without saying, no, this is the ship that the Lord wants you to be on and this is the ship that you need to get on. And another thing we can learn from Jonah, when we are sinfully rebellious as individuals, it has ramification for everyone around us. This whole idea of I'm an American, as long as I don't, quote, hurt anybody, it's okay. Individualism is a farce. Jonah and his rebellion almost took a ship down with him. And it's futile. Is it not futile, Jonah, to run from God? 
You probably read the Psalms. David wrote one. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee, literally, from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my, watch this, my bed, he'd laid down to sleep. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. May we, as a church, myself included, not be unconcerned with the lost and rebelliously running from God's commission. Because that's the last actor, the main actor of every book in the Bible, God. And the first thing we learn about him is he is absolutely sovereign. Absolutely. He is sovereign over nations. Verse 2, he can call any nation to repent to himself. And he is sovereign over nature. He was the one who hurls, throws the storms upon the sea. He's not a little league deity, not just the mascot of Israel. He's the God of the entire world and he has the right to command humans to do whatever he asks them to do. And here's the beauty. He's concerned with all mankind. Not only is he sovereign, he's concerned. He's concerned with Nineveh. Our Heavenly Father, who's sovereign over nations and nature, is concerned with Nineveh, and so much so that He will change the weather. Right? Psalm 33, 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and He puts the deeps into storehouses. That's the picture. You, you open it up. There's, there's the Atlantic. There's the Pacific. Where do I want to throw that one? He still roars over the seas and he, he stills their roaring waves. He calms them. He rules the raging sea. I, I think I want there to be a bad storm at sea today. Okay, God. Here I go, this one wave says. He made the storm be still and in 107.29 the waves of the sea are hushed. God is sovereign over creation. It is not Mother Nature. Mother Nature, you know, on Channel 8 there or whatever, Mother Nature may give us some more snow in the hill country this weekend. Mother who? How about Father God? I mean, I've seen this flying home into Denver couple of months back, it's Saturday night. I got to get home. Land in Denver Airport at 1 p.m. I don't get home until 10 p.m. because God saw fit to have a snowstorm right over Eagle. So I'm sitting there and I'm going through all my mind. Eric, what can I do? Do this. Uh, rent a car. I call all the rent a car companies. Uh, yeah, we're booked. Solid. Sorry. Calling CME and at one time, CME was booked, and now they're not booked. And just The Lord is sovereign over that. He wanted it to snow. He wanted to see how savvy I could be in the airport for nine hours. Right? You've heard of that. Everybody's heard about this. I've heard a story in Colorado. Plane lands. Can't taxi to the runway. It's just God in His sovereignty can have a storm come. So what do the pilots do? You know, the pilots, they get out. There was one, this is before they had laws on airplanes, by the way. One man gets so lit that he had to leave, and one kid passed out. But everybody else on the plane had to stay. And then the jolly lady comes on, look at what Mother Nature threw at us. No, it's God. God is sovereign. 
And in His sovereignty, this is the beauty, and don't miss this, God will pursue His wandering child. He will. Listen to this unbiblical quote. Sounds good, but it is completely false. God is patient, making a masterpiece of our lives. That's not not completely false. That's good. And He will stop at nothing except our own unwillingness not to cooperate. And here's this very 80s. That is just a boundary that God has chosen not to cross. If I would have quoted that to Jonah, hey Jonah, let me read you this. God's making you a masterpiece and He'll stop at nothing except your own rebelliousness. Jonah would say, no, it's not how it happened to me. God is sovereign and He is determined and He will pursue His wandering child. In fact, Dale Ralph Davis said of this chapter, our free will is a house of cards up against God's determination. If you are running from God today, know that God has not just allowed you to run in your own power and He has just allowed you that freedom because He wants true love. If you are running from Him and you are truly a child of His, He will come after you. He will. And you know who He's going to come after you with? I end with what Heath read at the beginning. He's going to come after you with grace and discipline and love because God sent forth His Son and His Son mimicked this exact thing. In Mark 3 at the end, it said, Jesus said to the waves, shh, or said to the wind, shh, to the waves, be still. And you know what his disciples did? The exact same thing the sailors did. They feared a great fear. Who is this? It's that man who went to the cross to die for our sinful rebellion. Today I want to ask one question and then we'll end. Are we rebelliously running from God? Be it a specific sin or something more important, God's commission to us as believers. Be it a specific sin in our own life, we're just running from it, we don't want to deal with it, we sweep it under the rug, we think God will just look over this, overlook this and it'll go, we'll move on. But more importantly, are we wanting from the Great Commission? It's repeated four times at the end of it's at the end of every gospel. Matthew says, Go make disciples. Mark says, Proclaim the gospel. Luke says, Be a witnesses beginning in your own hometown. And John says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Working back, Luke says, Be witnesses beginning in your own town, not only in Luke twenty four, but in Acts one eight. And so before we go to Guyana, let's go to Gypsum. Before we go to, uh, to uh, India, let's go to Eagle. Before we go to Ecuador, let's go to Edwards. Before we go to Africa, let's go to Avon. And before we go to the Virgin Islands, because people there need to hear the gospel, let's go to Vail. Seriously. And make disciples of all nations beginning in our hometown. This is the reason, this is the reason you've been left here on this earth. It is the reason. Whatever classes you choose, wherever you sit, whatever vacations you take,
whatever job you like to work in, whoever you find yourself living around, wherever your address is, mine right now is 0291 Tanager Circle, the orchards. Those are my neighbors. That's where God has sovereignly placed me. So every single person in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ is in some sense a prophet in that you are a man or woman of God with the Word of God to proclaim the good news to the world. And every person in here who has the Holy Spirit within them is a missionary. It is not just for two going overseas. Every person in here is a missionary. Every person. And we're all called to go and make disciples. So excited about what you did this weekend. Phenomenal. That's making disciples. That's saying let's be intentional about our lives. Let's gather our ladies together. Let's talk about the most important and critical thing in the world is the gospel and how we can share it with the next generation. That's why we're here. And I am I'm convicted in my own heart and I am convicted and I don't want to see it of this church. I don't think we're running with God sometimes in the command to go to the world. I think we're running against Him. I just don't know how to do it. I've never been taught that. Or I just don't think it'll be fruitful. I don't have much to offer. That's just lies from Satan. Lies from Satan. Jesus, the one who died and rose again as the Savior of our sins, who wants us to be with God, 1 Peter 3:18. Jesus, who calmed the storm, said one other thing in Mark 13. When he's telling of the end times, he ends his Olivet Discourse with this. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but, the only, but only the Father. Be on guard. And three times he says, Stay awake. For you do not know what, when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey and when he leaves his home, he puts his servants in charge and each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he suddenly find you asleep. And what I say, I say to you all, But I say to you, disciples, I say to you all, Jesus, as Mark recorded it, stay awake. Let us, none of us, myself included, let none of us be wide awake to what's going on in the world and asleep and unaware at the pandemonium that's going on in our neighbor's houses. Let us not be asleep when he comes back. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. Father, This is a tough text. It's not children's fiction. You've called us for something great. And you've done it in such a way that the greatest joy we could ever have, ever, is seeing a young man, a young 23-year-old man, understand what it means be a man after God's own heart. There's nothing greater than a young woman to hear from an older woman. He 
You're a pillar made for a palace. God, may we not get caught up in golf. May we not get caught up in skiing. May we not get caught up in shopping. May we not get caught up in just making it. God, you are sovereign. And if we are struggling financially, maritally, sinfully, we cry out to you knowing that you can help us get our lives in order and knowing that we can run to you. But Lord, I pray for myself and for anyone in this room, if we are running like Jonah away from you, might you do nothing more than to bring them back and use them mightily for your glory. We want to honor you by doing what you've called us to do. Help us be sent as you sent your Son be a witness in our neighborhood, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. We pray these things for your glory and the good of this valley and wherever you take us. In Jesus' name, amen.